Father, we come as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, knowing that we have become co-heirs to the inheritance that belongs to him, the whole earth, the whole creation. For you so loved the world that you gave your only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You did not spare your own Son, but gave him up for us all. You will surely with him graciously give us all things. Please, even now, make us all more grateful. Help us to trust you, trust you that you are indeed a faithful and gracious God. Lord Jesus, you said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So we pray for some of our brothers and sisters. First, we pray for Bill Hay as he nears physical death and for his faithful wife, Cindy, and their children and grandchildren. Be with them all as he and they walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We pray for Mike and Sandy Witten and Jerry and Sandra Norman as Mike and Sandra battle cancer. Help them experience the presence of Jesus. Holy Spirit, give them comfort. We pray for Kathy Gerardo as she recovers from hip surgery. That would go extremely well and be helpful to her. We do pray for the Missions Festival coming up in two weeks, for all the logistics to come together. You'd raise up volunteers uh, to meet all the needs to host our missionary families and hundreds of people from our church family. We pray that you would help us bless our ministry partners and that you would galvanize our church family as we gather and plan to grow together and go together into all things. We specifically pray for Will and Judy Traub, who are nearing the end of their faithful service in Scotland this year. Are they breaking up hard ground? Pray that you would give them peace as they think about that transition. Um, and we thank you for their service. So we celebrate new grandchildren for Judson and Mary Smith and for Boo and Nancy Mason. Two sets of twins, as I understand it. So we think about those children we are so glad that we've seen the triplets baptized this very morning. Uh, we pray that you would guide Robbie as he preaches your word um, and uh, do your good work in us uh, for our sake and the sake of others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me try one more time. The peace of the Lord be with you. Thank you. One out of three ain't great. All right. 
Um, I just want to say I'm really moved that many of you are having uh, big parties today, bringing out special recipes, uh, having all kinds of special gatherings to commemorate the ending of our preaching of the book of Numbers. That is very thoughtful, and I just deeply appreciate it. Uh, only one problem, you're one week off. It actually ends next week, so uh, just keep celebrating. Um, uh, this, we are uh, almost at the very end of our study of the book of Numbers. Uh, these are the, are the last two sermons. Um, and in from chapter 33, verse 50, to the end of the book, what you have is six laws helping people, uh, God helping God's people move into the land to receive this inheritance. And here's what we have to remind ourselves over and over again as we think about this. These stories remind us over and over again how faithful and how generous God is. Because he has a people whom he's rescued from Egypt. He's led them through the wilderness. They've failed miserably again and again and again. And then here they are on the border of the promised land. And they are about to go in. And when they go in, they're receiving a sheer gift because God loves them. They're not receiving the promised land because they're better than other people. They're clearly not. They're not receiving the pr- promised land because uh, they follow, They, you know, went up seven mountains and, and worked harder than other people. Nope. No, they didn't. Uh, they're receiving the promised land because God is faithful. He made a promise that he would give it to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's faithful. He's keeping that promise. And he's generous. He's giving them a land that's going to flow with milk and honey. It is a very productive, uh, rich land that they're going to live in and enjoy for a long time. But the best part of the land is Yahweh. He's the God of all the nations. He's the God of the whole earth. He's the creator of all things. But Yahweh has said, I'm attaching myself to you. I'm committing you to me. And when you go into the land, you're going to live in my presence. I am going to commit myself to live in your presence and you're going to live in my presence. And that's the deepest, richest part. If you understand who God is, how faithful and how generous he is, that's the best part of living in the land. That Yahweh says, I'll live with you. You'll wake up, I'll be your God. You'll go to work every day, I'll be your God. You go to bed, I don't sleep. I'm your God. And that's the best part of it. But he's, they're getting this land They're inheriting it. It's an unbelievable gift because he's faithful, because he's generous, because he's God and he loves his people. So today in this passage, we're going to see two things really. Number one, uh, that it is an inheritance and because God's going to live in their midst, uh, he has a plan for the cleansing of the land. Uh, There's some, they need to pay attention to his presence and take some action because Yahweh's going to live in the land with them. And so it's going to have to be cleaned up quite a bit because he's a holy God. But the second thing is uh, the passage really is about the the boundaries of the land. And we're going to do, there'll be a little rhythm to the sermon today. There'll be a then, uh, what do they have to do because of God's presence? How, what were they supposed to do? Uh, And then now, how should we live in light of God's presence? And then also then, uh, what do those boundaries mean to them then? And what are the boundaries now uh, for what God promises his people? So we'll do a little back and forth along those lines. If you will, I'm going to read the first six verses here. They're printed on page 13 of your worship God, also in your Bible. Uh, Genesis 30, uh, sorry, Numbers 33, uh, 50 to 56. I'll read that portion now and we'll reflect on all of it. 
throughout the sermon. Will you please read along with me? And Yahweh spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it. For I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides." And they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father in heaven, please give us keen insight into your word today. And into our very lives. Refresh for us your faithfulness, your generosity, which is beyond measuring, and teach us to live wise lives now in light of your eternal faithfulness and your unending generosity to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the first uh, paragraph of our passage uh, tells, God tells his people, you're going into the land, and he doesn't say if. Here's God's faithfulness and his generosity. When you go into the land, verse 51, when you go into the land that I'm giving you, when you go in, not if, uh, this is what you're going to do. And so what's really important to understand here is this really highlights the presence of God as he's, he's with the people now on the border of the land. He's going to be with his people when they move into the land and he will not hang out with false gods. The land is defiled because it's filled with idol worshipers, the idols that they worship. And there's all kinds of high places because uh, these people didn't know God. And so they made gods in their own images. And they're like, I think God's up there. If we're going to worship him, let's go up on a high hill somewhere. And if we get on a high hill, uh, we'll take some stones and shape the stones into a God that we can kind of relate to. Or we'll take some metal pieces and make those into gods we can relate to. And by the way, we're on these high hills. These gods, they seem to be kind of angry and hungry. And we want them to, to do what we want them to do. So we better give them some great sacrifices. And so there were a couple gods in, the ancient, in this part of the world then. One named Molech, one named Chemosh, and others that required them to sacrifice things like their firstborn sons. So what we're seeing in the book of Numbers is hints about God's righteous judgment. When people worship idols, it destroys life. When I worship idols, it deeply hurts Chrissy Holt because she's my wife. Uh, when we worship idols, it impacts the people around us and brings all kinds of brokenness and sorrow. And what God said when he first called Abraham, when his name was still Abram, God said, I'm going to give this land. He let him look at it. He said, I'm going to give this land to you and your descendants. And you're going to push the people out that are worshiping false gods, but their, their wickedness has not reached its zenith yet. 
So he told him that 400, over 400 years before this happened. And so now the wickedness of these people living in this place has reached its peak. And God in his righteous judgment is going to push them out. But look what the holy God is doing. He tells his people, push out the idol worshipers. And then what does he say? Drive them out. But also, once you drive them out, destroy their figured stones, destroy their metal, metal images, and demolish their high places. In other words, Yahweh is saying, get rid of all the, first, all the false worship in the promised land. Why? Because God's going to be there. And he's holy and he won't uh, hang out and, and share the table with false gods. That's not who God is. That's not what he's like. The whole land was to be holy because God was going to live there. Uh, one of the things that God said is demolish the high places. I don't know about you that have raised children, but, you know, Christy and I raised four children. And we had three that were the oldest three. And then there was a six-year gap until Ellie came along. But we had a daughter, a son, and a daughter. And a lot of times they built things. And, and you know, they, they really had fun. It'd be really quiet for at least 15 minutes while they're building beautiful things. But one of those three, three kids, namely our son, what he really loved to do was demolish what they built. Right? Just a three-year-old boy, four-year-old boy. As soon as it's built up, what, big Lego thing. Uh, Clark couldn't wait to demolish it. And that's actually what God is telling his covenant people to do in this situation. What is it they've built on every high place and every high hill? False altars or wicked worship. And God is saying, drive them out, destroy the idols, and demolish the high places. I don't know if you know this, but uh, King David was the, the, the greatest king in the history of Israel. Right now in our adult Sunday school, we're studying a lot of wisdom literature. Solomon's the wisest man except for Jesus that ever lived. And you know that even King Solomon took so many wives to himself, which was the opposite of wisdom. They ended up building temple sites for his wives and they built altars on high places. And some of the gods that Solomon's wives worshiped were Molech and Chemosh because they didn't obey God. They didn't push it all out. And so that means Solomon's David's sons. So some of King David's grandsons would have been burned to death as false worship to these wicked false gods. Don't you see what God is interested in? He, he is a holy God that's going to live in the midst of his people. And so he wants them to pr- push all of that defilement out of the land. Well, that was then. I want you to see how this crashes into your life and my life in the New Testament. That was then. How is it now? And just for a minute, I'm going to read a little bit from 1 Corinthians 3 and especially chapter 6. You can look, turn there if you want to or just listen. Uh, in the New Testament, we are God's holy space. That's what the New Testament says. We're God's temple in Christ. So we must rid ourselves, our lives, of internal sin and sin's defilement. Actions required on our part. Action was required of them. Drive out the inhabitants, the idol worshipers. Destroy their idols. Demolish the high places. Well, that's turned to us inwardly in the New Testament. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3. Do you not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit The holy presence of God lives in y'all, so you must deal with it. You must acknowledge it and take action. And so here's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, where he applies this very thinking to us. He says to the Corinthians, who were wild pagans before they met Jesus, he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Notice there's a lot of inheritance language in our passage. We'll get to that in a minute. And then Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You hear what Paul's got the same theme going on, like who will inherit what God has promised. In a minute, we'll talk about what that means, the kingdom of God. But what he's saying here is people who nurse wickedness, people who are nursing greed and nursing and feeding sexual immorality and giving into those very natural, normal, sinful impulses for humans, those who follow and live that way, it means that we believe that the passing satisfactions of this age are better than and more reliable than what our faithful and generous God offers us. And so what's Paul, what Paul here is saying is, yes, you have the presence of sin still in you, but if you live lives of rebellion, if there's no desire for holiness and you give yourselves over to greed and sexual immorality and this whole list here, uh, what it is proving is that you don't know the Lord. There isn't the presence of the Holy Spirit. You, you haven't been made new And so those are those who do not inherit the kingdom of God. You might know some of these stories, but uh, long before George W. Bush was our 43rd president, uh, he was having a lot of character struggles. He had major character flaws, and you've probably heard some of these stories. Matter of fact, in the early years of his marriage with Laura Bush, uh, he was drinking very heavily, and he was getting drunk often. And at one point, they went with friends on a trip to Colorado Springs, and it was a very wild uh, drink fest. And after that uh, weekend where uh, George drank way too much and behaved badly, uh, he woke up the next morning, and it grieved him, and he wanted to change. And he began to process, like, who am I? What is my future? And he, and he had a vision for his future. He, he, could, he could see that at this point, now his father was the vice president and might be president one day. And so instead of just crumbling under the pressure, he, he decided he wanted to change. He had a different vision for his future. But as his wife, Laura, once told Oprah Winfrey in, in an interview, she also had a different vision for his future. And she looked at him on that morning, looked him in the eyes and said, you're a better man than Divorce, she says, wasn't in their vocabulary, but she cast a vision for him. She said, I married you. I had envisioned a better man. We have these two twin daughters. I had envisioned a better father. You can be that. And so she cast a vision for where his life could go and what it could be like. And I want you to know, that's wise thinking. Do you, do you have a vision in mind about where you're headed, where your life is headed? What's the trajectory of your life? I want you to know that God has a vision for you. God has rescued you by his grace and made you his very own. And God's vision for you is to conform you to the character of Jesus Christ. You are going to be brought all the way to glory and you will live as God's holy, glorified saint forever and ever and ever. And that grace and that promise is supposed to direct our hearts and our minds and our mouths and our actions. We're supposed to lean into that future, that vision God has for us by faith, trusting in his grace, working in our lives, aiming for the vision that he has named for us. At the end of that passage, it's 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul repeats what he said earlier in chapter 3. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? The Spirit of God lives in you. You whom you have, the Holy Spirit whom you have from God. 
you are not your own. In the Old Testament, they were supposed to clean out the idolaters and their idols and those places of worship. In the New Covenant, we turn inwardly. And we look at the idolatry of our own hearts. And we say, the change needs to happen in here. I must change because of God's grace and God's mercy and his gracious vision for me and the people of God. But it's interesting, isn't it? In both places, Paul said, um, if, you're, if you rebel and don't walk with God in his ways, if your faith isn't really real, he says, then you won't inherit the kingdom of God. I wonder what, that, what are the boundaries of that? And with that question in mind, let's go back to our passage in chapter 34. That's exactly what God brings up with Moses in chapter 34 and following. So look with me in Numbers 34. Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land, once again, see God's faithfulness and generosity, not if, when, when you enter the land of Canaan, that is the land that shall fall to you for an inheritance, the land of Canaan as defined by its borders. And let me tell you what's coming next. In verses three through five, uh, God describes the southern border and it's basically the area around Kadesh Barnea, the very place that God's people rebelled when he sent the 12 spies into the promised land. 10 came out saying, ah, uh, the the armies, the, the people are too big. We can't handle it. And they rebelled against God and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, that's the southern border of the land. And then he goes and he looks at the western border. And the western border um, is basically the Mediterranean Sea. So that's pretty easy. And then from the Mediterranean Sea up to a high place called Mount Hor and over to the east, uh, that's the northern border. um, And that's in verses 7 through 9. The western border is one verse. Mediterranean Sea, verse 6. Uh, And then verse 10, you get the eastern border, uh, which basically goes from that northern corner down Sea of Galilee, the River of Jordan. So God draws a very, honestly, a pretty big box. When you get it, when you cross from the plains of Moab across the Jordan River, when you go, this is all you get. And here's what's fascinating. The covenant people of God and the old covenant, they never got the whole thing. Not even under King David did they ever stretch all the way to the north and the south and the east and the west as described here. This is an ideal picture of God's unbelievable gift that God's people were always tripping over themselves, always falling short, always making unwise decisions, always turning to idols that they were forbidden to worship. And so what's amazing is this is a very amazing, worthwhile chunk of land that God promises to give them. And they never realize all its boundaries because of their waywardness. God's faithful and generous, but they don't have the faith and the lives to claim all of it. But that's, that's the border in the Old Covenant. And, and if you really, really care about geopolitics in the ancient world, these borders really, really matter. But if you want to understand what happens in the New Testament, the boundaries, the borders change quite a bit. So now, that was then, here's now. When you get to the New Testament, what are the borders? What did, what did Paul mean by certain people won't inherit the kingdom of God? Because he believes, as we saw in the New Testament reading, those who believe in Christ Jesus do get the promised inheritance. Right? They do get it. And so uh, here's, the, here's the short answer. Here's your inheritance, believer. The whole earth. You might be really worked up about a narrow strip of land uh, in the Middle East. Uh, God wants you to get fired up about the whole earth. The whole earth 
is your inheritance and not just the whole earth as it presently is, but the whole earth transformed by God's real presence in the new heavens and the new earth. If you believe in Jesus, Jesus is the rightful heir of the whole earth transformed into the new heavens and the new earth. And if you believe in Jesus, he's the heir and you're the co-heir with him of all things. That's how enormous your inheritance is. Let me prove it to you with two verses, okay? Um, And I prophesy they'll show up somewhere in the near future in your lives. Here we go. Uh, Proverbs, uh, sorry, Psalm 3711. King David wrote these words. I bet they'll sound familiar. Psalm 3711, King David. The meek shall inherit the land. That sounds familiar. Kind of familiar, doesn't it? The meek shall inherit the land. That's what King David said. What did King Jesus say? The meek shall inherit the earth. See the expansion? It's right there on the lips of Jesus. It's fascinating if you read the Beatitudes. uh, The poor in spirit, blessed are they, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the meek shall inherit the earth. So what is it? The poor poor in spirit go to heaven and the meek at the earth? That's really, is that that up? How can Jesus begin the Beatitudes saying certain people will, in, theirs is the kingdom of heaven and the last one, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Don't you understand that's how the story of the Bible goes. Heaven is coming to earth. When Jesus comes in his, his glorious return, he's renewing and restoring all things, the new heavens and the new earth. And if you believe in Jesus, that is your inheritance. You might be thinking, Robbie, I heard that list from 1 Corinthians 6. And I I read these stories about the Israelites. And honestly, it's like looking in the mirror. I struggle with the same things. What does that that mean for me? Don't, don't, Don't miss this. How does anyone get this unbelievably glorious inheritance? How does anyone inherit the new heavens and the new earth? We already read it. Richard read it for us at the beginning of the service. The Lord Jesus Christ became a curse for us. The curse that we deserve for our rebellion fell on the Lord Jesus Christ. For cursed is everyone, anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus Christ hung on the tree, cursed in our place because of our rebellion. If you believe in Jesus, then his inheritance belongs to you. And true faith in Jesus says, that's an amazingly faithful God. That's a very generous promise. And now I want to be a holy person. A true believer says, that's amazing. That's what I want. I want what God's promised me. And so I want my life to begin to match it over and over. I want my life to change. I don't want to have the same struggles in my heart at the same level in five years as I do today. I want to see change, growth, and transformation that fits these promises This vision that God has cast for me. Is God faithful and generous? And can we live like it? I want to end by just thinking in some concrete ways how you and I can live out, live a response to God's faithfulness and generosity. So let me give you some categories where this might really matter. First of all, I want to address students of every age. At the 830 service, we have a whole lot of younger kids. There are some young kids in this service. At the 11 o'clock service, we have a lot of, often have a lot of college students, which is great. We also have, you know, all kinds of UAB students here, sometimes getting master's degrees and PhDs and fellowships beyond that. So I want to address students of every age from pre-K all the way up to those post, uh, postgraduate fellowships. Here's what it means to live like God is faithful and generous in the present. Work hard as a student. All truth is God's truth. 
You can't learn anything that will freak God out or surprise God. If it's true, it's God's truth. So here's one way you can live like God is faithful and generous. Be diligent as a student. Work hard because this is God's world. We live in God's world. And one day God's going to heal the world all the way to perfection. And the more you know about it, the more you can work in that direction. But also for students at all ages, especially the younger students, especially maybe those in middle school, think about relationships. How can you live in the present like God is faithful and generous? Some of us have more social clout than others. Who's that student in your class or your lunchroom who never gets invited to sit with a friend, to go do something afterwards? If God is faithful and generous to you, then you can be faithful and generous to others. For a second, I want to talk to parents of young children because God is generous and faithful. Keep serving. It only feels like it's going to last forever. Uh, If you need encouragement as you're raising very young children, uh, go talk to some of the empty nesters like Chrissy and me, and we'll tell you there really are things you're experiencing now that we kind of miss. It doesn't make sense now, I know, but one day it will make sense. It's exhausting to be parents of very young children all they have is need and you you meet every need and they never know to say thank you how are you going to keep serving in those situations you can keep serving because god is faithful and generous he supplies all that you need i remember when i was a young parent of young kids um my a friend across the street who was 20 years older than me he said robbie you're in the physically exhausting exhausting page of parenthood he had teenagers he said I'm in the emotionally exhausting phase of parenthood. And I thought, what does he know? He was 100% right. So parents raising teenagers, what does it mean for you to trust in the faithfulness and the generosity of God? It means to be exceedingly patient, to be open and honest, have difficult conversations that you don't want to have. Pray and get in God's presence before you have very tense conversations because you're Children need to know the truth, but they also need to know the grace and mercy of God and that the truth comes from wisdom and love that's for them. It's very easy when we get reactive uh, to give our kids rules for our sake. What they need us to do is to have wisdom and set boundaries and they need to know it's coming for their sake. And if you're in the room and you're a teenager, I want you to know your parents have an impossible job. But because God is faithful and generous, they're going to give you rules and boundaries that you're going to hate. But it's because they love you and they have wisdom that you don't have yet. And if you don't believe me, pray about that. Um, Because God's so faithful and generous. Um, He's working these areas. I want to talk to business owners and entrepreneurs just for a second. Because God is faithful and generous, I want you to keep creating good work, create more businesses, and hire as many people as possible. Everyone in our city and our region is made in the image of God, made to express their gifts and their talents through good work. And some people in this room have the ability, the genius, the power, and the wealth to create more businesses and more opportunity. Go for it. Hire more people. One less vacation, one more job. Whatever it takes, uh, create wealth, create work for others. And finally, I want to address... Uh, the whole congregation, uh, this is, I've been really moved and encouraged by what a generous congregation that you are. So generous givers, how should we respond to God's faithfulness and generosity? I'm so thankful. I want to just say this, keep going. Uh, this age that we're living in is a very, very short age. It ends very quickly. The age to come will last forever, ever. You'll never 
regret a single sacrificial gift in the age to come. You and I serve a faithful and generous God. Let's meet him at his table. Father in heaven, thank you so much for sending your son in all of your faithfulness. Thank you in your generosity for sending your son for us. Now, Lord Jesus, we draw near to you by faith to feast in your presence, to remember and experience your faithfulness and your generosity. Amen.